welcome. Are you a member of CIS, Jen? Of course I am. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I am. If you're not, and if you renew today at, okay. the, at the $250 level, yeah. I will send okay, you a personally signed copy of Liberty and Liberalism. So keep it in mind. All right. Well, I think we're ready to go. So I will get started. Hello, On Liberty has not been canceled. It's been renewed for a second season. So welcome to episode 16 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Janet Albrechtson, Australia's top opinion columnist, appearing regularly in the Australian newspaper. Janet and I will be discussing her weekend column on cancel culture. Janet Albrechtson, how are you? Oh, I'm very well. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Um, We're pleased to have you as our marquee guest for season two. Thanks for joining us. Your weekend column opened with a version of the famous Martin Niemöller lament. First they came for the communists, then they came for the Jews. Of course, you customized it for the current cancel culture. Is this really, I mean, do we need to all band together before it's too late? Well, we certainly do, and we're, we're you know, the, the inevitable is happening, and that is that uh, they are, when I say they, we'll talk about they, but um, the cancellors are coming for uh, more and more people. You know, they're coming for the authors, they're coming for J.K. Rowling, they're coming for the scientists, they're coming for the linguistics professors like Stephen Pinker overnight has written a very powerful piece on how 600 people um, have tried to cancel him. Um, they are coming from more and more groups of people, and unless we stand up, I don't think we are able to turn the tide. It's in, you know, this is why the, the CIS exists. This is why the IPA exists. We can't rely on uh, universities to do it. We can't rely on government to do it. So we have to do it at an individual level. We have to do it at a group level, and that's what we do. Right, because this isn't so much an issue, I think, of government cancellations. This is society cancelling people. I mean, going back to our own roots, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, who is our honorary patron here at On Liberty, uh, was more afraid that society would make it impossible for people to express their opinions than he was afraid of government restricting speech. Uh, I mean, it, it, is the revenge of society in some sense something to be afraid of? Well, I, I think it is when you start having, um, when you replace a marketplace of ideas with a marketplace of outrage, which is where we are now, uh, we, we should be very, very concerned. I think we need to understand what's happening. I don't think it helps just to mock what I will call the social justice movement, which is a very big part of this cancelling culture. I don't think it helps just to call them snowflakes either. I think we have to understand where it's come from, and it's come from the way that the Liberal Project has changed over time. So as much as we would, you know, like to still be in the time of John Stuart Mill on liberty, um, it has changed over time, and part of that is governmental, part of that is societal, uh, and the movement that we see today, the social justice movement, I think we need to understand not just as a cultural shift, but also as a form of new religion. And once you understand that as the new moral code for a big group of people, I mean, Salvatore, it's not going anywhere. So we can't just ignore it. We can't just laugh at it. We can't just get angry at it. It is here. It's in workplaces, it's in universities. It's, it's, it's everywhere. So we have to confront it. And I think yeah. we can confront it. 
you use that magic phrase, the marketplace for ideas. And the whole point of a marketplace is that it's somewhere where no matter who you are, no matter what your background, you can still buy things. I mean, even if you are a you know, convicted rapist murderer, once you've served your time in jail, you can come out and you can still go to Woolworths, right? Uh, but with ideas, we seem to be, or at least a lot of people seem to be not as comfortable with that. They don't feel that they feel that somehow your own morality uh, licenses or doesn't license you to participate in the marketplace for ideas. I mean, do you think that ideas really should be more like the market? That is, everyone can participate no matter what their supposed moral code? Uh, or should it be more like a family where you know, people might shut down opinions they disagree with? No, I have a pretty robust family. We, um, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I agree with my children and sometimes I don't and vice versa. I would always want us to be erring on the side of um, diversity, robustness, offence if we have to, um, rather than the, the opposite. We know what the opposite looks like and it's really, it's really not healthy. And if you think of the way the story of Western civilization has developed, the best periods of Western civilization have always been where we can discuss, where we can challenge, um, where, you know, one person's unorthodox view at one point becomes accepted because we've been able to challenge it and test it and test it against other ideas. The moment we can't do that. I mean, you know, if we come up with an idea, it's very unlikely to be the perfect idea unless we test it. You know, if you analyse any kind of social phenomenon, your first instinct or your first finding is unlikely to be right until we test it. We find data, we critique it. It's that process, I think, that we are we are losing and we are dumbing ourselves down in the process. And I think that's the really, really dangerous part of this. But we have to convince people of this. You know, we can't just assume that everyone understands that, you know, your understanding of liberty and my understanding of liberty and intellectual freedom is theirs. We are dealing with a new generation um, who probably don't take for granted what you and I have taken for granted and the kinds of education that we received. So I think it's incumbent on us to try to understand them rather than make fun of them. So, Janet, I don't know why you're so concerned with the freedom to offend when I'm sure you never offend anybody. (laughs) (laughs) In your weekend column, which was which was certainly not offensive this weekend, you highlighted the Barry Weiss letter. Now, Barry Weiss was a, a an editor at the New York Times who resigned with a very public uh, letter saying, and I'm going to quote from the letter, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Uh, what do you think of the Barry Weiss letter? Uh, I thought it was a, a very, very good letter. And I, I think Barry Weiss... Um, exposed what she has worked with, which is an increasingly illiberal environment. The irony, of course, is that Barry Weiss was brought into the New York Times after the uh, 2016 presidential election, where the New York Times admitted to its readers that it didn't have its finger on the pulse of the nation and it had failed to explain America back to its readers. It didn't see Donald Trump coming. So they, they brought in Barry Weiss, who was meant to make the paper more diverse, um, and now she's left because the environment there is so illiberal. And one of the points she makes, Salvatore, very interestingly, is that she says Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, and yet Twitter is basically making all these editorial decisions for the New York Times. Right. And, I, and I hear for Australia's courts. 
Yes, well, I think you're alluding to a judgment that came down yesterday in relation to uh, the very esteemed scientist Peter Ridd from James Cook University, who I'm sure many viewers will know was uh, sacked by James Cook University a couple of years ago for breaching the university's code of conduct. Um, at first instance, um, the federal court, circuit, circuit court, held that JCU could not terminate him under the code of conduct. Um, and uh, it, of course, went on to appeal. JCU is using hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars to appeal this, which in itself is extraordinary that they are going to such lengths to fight against the intellectual freedom of one of their very esteemed um, uh, scientists who has been there for 27 years, who is so loved by, some, uh, by students, uh, respected. And all he did, let's remember, was challenge the quality assurance of science in, in, in some respects, coming out of JCU. And for that, he was sacked for not behaving in a collegial fashion. And what I find extraordinary about this judgment yesterday is two judges, and I, I just want to read you paragraph 94. It's short. <laughs> speaking, speaking, speaking like the lawyer you are, I should remind our viewers that in, in Janet's previous life, before being a columnist, she was and still is, I think, a lawyer. Is that correct? Uh, I don't practice, no. Oh, I do love I do love reading a judgment, I have so, to admit. <laughs> so read to us, quote, quote chapter and verse, or as it may be, paragraph this, from this judgment. This okay. will become, if it is not overturned, it becomes a seminal decision on what academics, and not just Peter Ridd, every academic who is at a university or thinks about joining a university will now know that a university in the 21st century is more focused on the behaviour of its academics than the pursuit of intellectual freedom and the truth. Now, that is where we're at. And let me just read this from paragraph 94. The judges, the majority judges say, there is little to be gained in resorting to historical concepts and definitions of academic freedom. And they go on to talk about how social media, Twitter and other platforms have changed what we might look back and think of as intellectual freedom. So think about that. How long has Twitter been around? For a few years. How long have we stood that intellectual freedom is incredibly important for us as a society to progress. And the university is saying we have to look at how Twitter is changing conversations and therefore we have to narrow the range of intellectual freedom. That's extraordinary. That, that is that's extraordinary. So I think what it means is that finally the government might need to step in and actually make it a requirement in return for funding that you do not allow a code of conduct to override intellectual freedom on a university campus. It's as simple as that. Well, I'm going to ask that we've come to that, right? How sad. I'm going to ask you to keep your lawyer hat on for a moment because I am curious about this. The court is, isn't the court's role simply to rule what's, what the law says on it, not what the university should do? I mean, wouldn't it be legislating from the bench if the university were to express an opinion on the importance of academic freedom? Well, the problem is that they are dealing with a code of conduct, the uh, James Cook University's code of conduct, and every university has one. They're all a bit different, but um, they are invariably always vague, incredibly ambiguous, and the court accepts that, incredibly ambiguous. So, therefore, if you have an ambiguously worded code of conduct, you can basically use it to do whatever you want. And in this instance, they have, James Cook University grabbed hold of a provision that said that we expect people to behave in a collegial manner and that, in effect, stopped uh, Peter Reid from challenging the quality assurance of science coming out of some parts of JCU. 
Do you see what I mean? It's not it's not law. It, it's a vaguely drafted code of conduct that gets incorporated into employment. It's, this is happening in every workplace, by the way. So this is this is of course every workplace should have a code of conduct, but it should be very very clear to employers. It should absolutely be crystal clear to academics that they have a right to pursue intellectual freedom on campus. But that's exactly what is not happening. And the court has confirmed that to them, Twitter and other social media platforms will constrain intellectual freedom in the 21st century. I think that's a pretty sad development. Mm -hmm. Now, viewers may not be aware that Janet is, in addition to her other roles, the chairman of the Institute for Public Affairs, the IPA in Melbourne. And I understand the IPA is actually supporting Peter Ridd in this case. We are. We absolutely are. We see this as, uh, you know, it goes well beyond what's happening to Peter Ridd and we feel for him and we support him. But this is, this is a seminal uh, case of cancel culture being done by administrators of a university who accept taxpayer-funded dollars. And think about it right now. They want more money to get through this crisis. How can they be asking for more money from taxpayers at a time when a university is saying we prefer to regulate the conduct of our academics to upholding intellectual freedom? Right. Well, kudos to Janet and the IPA. Kudos also to our viewers, uh, Gay, Isabel, Robbie, uh, <laughs> Big Brain, <laughs> Tracy, thanks all for joining us back for season two. Janet, I'd like to go back to your column. Uh, you wrote that intolerance develops uh, or delivers a triple whammy. Uh, first, it diminishes our ability to shift, uh, to sift the good ideas from the bad ones. Second, it creates unhinged, self-possessed martyrs. Uh, and third, it stokes deep resentments that can easily be exploited. These are all practical reasons to fight intolerance. But I mean, why did you choose to put, pitch this at a practical level instead of at the moral level? What, what, what is this tension between, you know, should we fight intolerance because it's bad for the way business gets done, or should we fight intolerance because we simply don't agree with intolerance? Um, I think we need, if we, are, if we are to turn the tide on this, I, have to, I think it is uh, important for us to explain why it doesn't work at a practical level. Because you have to remember that, you know, the social justice warriors, the adherents, the followers to social justice, they do have a moral code here, I think. I don't agree with it, but I believe that many of them are genuine in thinking that the way that they are pursuing justice, and that is in many cases by being very, very illiberal, shutting down voices, cancelling people, getting them sacked, tainting reputations, um, is how they see that we can progress the world in the direction that they think it should go. I think that's dangerous. And I would, you know, I think it's, it, we'd need to explain to them that if you cancel people, and there are lots of people out there with really, really awful views, right. I would much rather them be exposed to that marketplace of ideas that you and I um, believe in than shutting them down because I think they do become martyrs. I think they become underground martyrs. I think they can use social media to their own, you know, create these sort of these awful echo chambers. Um they become much more important than they deserve to be. I would much rather throw them out there, put a little bit of sunlight on them and, and, and show just how wrong they are. That's a much better way of dealing with um, bad ideas than shutting them down. Right. And I also give a shout out to Mike. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we will go to questions in just a few minutes. I see Tracy already has a question in. Thank you. The rest of you on YouTube, 
please do get your questions in for Janet now, and we'll get to them in about four minutes. We'll go to question time. We'd love to have your input. Uh, Janet, you mentioned Steven Pinker a couple times, uh, along with uh, other left luminaries, uh, Noam Chomsky, J.K. Rowling, Francis Fukuyama. Uh, he signed a letter to Harper's Magazine, uh, essentially decrying the cancel culture, although they did not use those two words, cancel culture. They decried intolerance. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Harper's letter? Um, I think it's really, really important that we have more and more people coming out. I mean, this is this is how um, this is how ideas develop. Not everyone's on the same page on day one. You know, it takes time for people to understand just how dangerous illiberal um, movements can become. And of course, I would have loved all of those writers and artists and public intellectuals to have come out a couple of decades ago when, when, when you know, I was looking at this and I could see this wasn't this wasn't going well. The trajectory was not looking good for, for, for Western civilization. But they've come out now. I always think it's better late than never. We can we can you know um, be a little disappointed that they didn't come out early. But this is how we win people over, Salvatore. And you know, this is how I would hope that more people uh, will, will step up and say what is happening um, is not good for us. This, this, won't, this won't serve any interest at all. Um, it will be very, very bad for the way that our society develops. And we have to remember that, you know, Western civilization is just a story and we are just in the current chapter and what we do now matters to that story. So I think it's incumbent on us, you know, as I said earlier, the CIS to do what we do and that is try to explain what's wrong. But the letter did strike me at least as being quite self-indulgent in that it decried the rise of intolerance uh, because uh, of the need to resist Donald Trump and the radical right, <laughs> that intellectuals have to stay focused. They said intellectuals have to stand together to resist Donald Trump and the right, and that's why they couldn't be canceling each other. I don't think they'd be very worried if you got canceled, Janet. <laughs> Well, yeah, there weren't too many people on the left who, who were worried when I was trying to be cancelled a couple of decades ago. But um, that's true. That is absolutely true. And the irony, of course, of, of that claim by them um, is that Donald Trump hasn't shut down any free, um, you know, debate. I, mean, I think he's a little crazy. I, I think the way he speaks, <laughs> is, you know, is pretty awful sometimes. I think he says really dumb things. Um, but as far as I can see, he hasn't shut down. Um, any people, um, and the the real danger is not, as we discussed earlier, coming from government. The real danger is coming at the grassroots level from activists, whether it's in the Me Too movement, whether, whether it's in the Black Lives Matter movement. That's where the danger lies, and I think those uh, the the people who signed that letter could have been a bit more intellectually honest on that front. But again, we're not going to get everyone exactly in the same position agreeing to exactly what we want. We'll get there slowly. We'll get there slowly. I mean, you mentioned in particular Steven Pinker's column. Now, Steven Pinker's a, a celebrity evolutionary psychologist who uh, has written books about how you know the world is getting better and better, but uh, he's become a really a big figure at Harvard University. Uh, yet there were a group of linguists who wanted to see him canceled, admittedly canceled from a uh, purely honorary appointment at the Linguistics, I think, Linguistic Society of America. Uh, I have not read his response to that letter, the 600 mostly junior linguists who were upset about honors being given to him. 
Have you read his, his op-ed response? I've read, I've, well, I was, I was out running this morning and I, I listened to a report on it on okay. um, BBC NewsHour. So, but he, he was interesting and he talked about this, um, what, what he's, of course he's not being cancelled in any real um, right. form because he has a huge profile. He has a great reputation. He has status. Um, but what he talked about is that uh, we are watching a regime of intimidation, he called it, which will affect others far more than it will affect them. Because people will know not to say something that might be even slightly controversial for fear of this kind of thing happening to them. It would absolutely stifle people being uh, innovative and exploring ideas and possibly, you know, for fear of offending um, other people. That's the real danger. And the other, the other point that he makes, of course, is if we can't discuss things, we're locking in error. And we talked about that earlier. You know, we're, we're locking in error and that, that would be, that would, just be anathema to um, to the ideals of the Enlightenment and to how Western civilization has progressed. Right. Now, this is the point in the program where I take a moment to make sure that we don't get cancelled. Not that anyone would cancel us for what we say, but they might cancel us for not raising enough money. <laughs> so I would like to ask everyone to click that support link. I know that Emily, our producer, is about to put up a support the CIS link. We'd love to have your support. If you are a member, thank you very much. Uh, we would love to, well, obviously, thank you for being a member, but if you can make an extra contribution specifically to support this program, that helps keep us on the air. Janet has waived her customary six-figure speaker fee to be here, but nonetheless, we do have to pay the producers. We do have to pay the rent. Uh, well, actually, we don't have rent here. We do have to pay for the equipment and such. Uh, so please, you know, if you can make an additional contribution specifically for this program, it's much appreciated. If you're not a member, $40 gets you started. Look what I've got for you. That's right. A CIS published Liberty and Liberalism, the first work of classical liberal philosophy written and published in Australia, uh, republished by the Center for Independent Studies a few years ago under the leadership of Greg Lindsay. I will personally sign this book and order the producers to mail it to you uh, if you will contribute at the $250 level to On Liberty. We would love to have you. Of course, also please click the like button on the video. I'm sure you like both Janet and me. And if you like us, thumbs up, click the like button and subscribe to CIS. Now, Janet, we do have questions that have been coming in fast and furious. I have to go to Tracy first. She got hers in before we even asked for them. Tracy says, well done, Janet and the IPA. Society needs institutions like the IPA. And she wants to ask, we are dumbing ourselves down as well as dumbing down the younger generations. Uh, we're, are we losing the concept of what liberty is? Yes, we absolutely are. I think that's right. But I think the, the notion of liberalism, and I'll have to reread re that book that you just put up. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's behind me somewhere, but I will reread it. The $250, point is, I can get you signed copy. I'll get another copy and I'll give it to my children. <laughs> um, and look, you know, can I just re-endorse what you said just a moment ago? Right at this moment in time, in, at this point in history, organisations like the CIS are even more important than they were 10 years ago, even more important than they were when, you know, the wonderful Greg Lindsay set up the CIS. I think right now um, we are facing so many, not just economic dangers, but intellectual dangers, and it's, it's that that's what concerns me the most. So we, we can sit down and we can, you know, uh, feign outrage or we can do something. So I think that's very much what we do and that's what we're doing here. Um, liberalism, I think, has changed as a concept over so many um, years, and um, it's not 
I, you know, I don't want to attack the younger generation for not necessarily understanding what liberalism is because there are so many um, different definitions and ideas um, and phenomena around liberalism. So that, that means that it's up to us to explain what we think by liberalism, explaining why it matters. Um, and, again, I'll come back to what, what we discussed earlier about social justice. The reason I see it as a new religion in a secular age is that I do believe that most people are after some kind of moral code. Uh, they're not choosing Christianity, they're not choosing Judaism, they're not choosing other orthodox religions, but they are choosing something and they need direction and they want to feel part of a tribe. But they're not all zealots either, just in the same way that, you know, not everyone's an orthodox Jew or a fundamentalist Christian. There are people who dip into and take parts of, they'll, you know, discard some rituals and some tenets, but they will take some parts of it. And I do think that it's harder to reach the zealots, but it's not hard to reach the others who are dipping into social justice because they see it as a, a morally attractive movement. Um, and if we can explain to them the parts of the social justice movement that are harmful and cancel culture is one of them without conflating cancel culture. Let's not be silly about what it means. Let's find the most egregious episodes and explain why it's dangerous. I think we're dealing with people who want to understand their own futures too. Um, I'm sure that we can do it. It's just a question of actually, you know, getting your fingers, getting some dirt under your nails and doing it. I'm interested to hear you push the religion analogy because, of course, uh, Christianity used to be closely associated with uh, intolerance. So, you know, the Inquisition, uh, many Muslim uh, majority countries today are highly intolerant. They have their own version of cancel culture, uh, which can result in you know, people getting killed for their, their viewpoints and for expressing themselves, why are I mean? Do you really think it's a it's a yearning for a new religion that leads to secular societies also looking for a secular version of intolerance? I do. I, I don't know that they necessarily think they're they're searching for intolerance, so Salvatore. I think they're just they 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 are um, skewering liberty on the altar of justice. Um, I, I don't think they see it as intolerance. And um, I think if we can explain to them that there is no justice when, when if you're shutting down views and not progressing a society, um, I absolutely do think that there's a, there are religious overtones. Of course, it's cultural, but it's it, it, it feels very much like a religion in the way that uh, people sign up to different, ten, different tenets and there are rituals and... Um, <laughs> You know, there, there's persecution. There's almost no redemption sometimes. It doesn't matter if someone had sinned and said sorry. There's this, you know, it, it, in many ways it's worse than some of the, the religions that, that we know about because there's no redemption for, for some of the zealots. But, again, let's not think that everyone part of the social justice movement is a zealot. Of course there are zealots like there are in every religion. Um, it's, it's the ones in the middle, the moderates, you know, the ones who dip into it and take part of it who I think that we are talking to. Um, and, and, and that's where I think progress and discussion can lay. Right. Uh, Isabel is asking about advice, practical advice for university students. If university students want to turn the tide, uh, what can they do in practical terms? They, they can, um, I think they can step up. They can say what they'd like to say. I don't think we have to seek to offend people. 
I think we should conduct uh, discussions in a civil way. And, you know, the most that you can do, as Dave Rubin said, is do it and see what happens. Like, just do it and see what happens. Like, speak up, um, express your views. What's the worst that's going to happen to you? Well, Drew Pavlou may have an answer for that. <laughs> for that. <laughs> uh, but, but, Salvatore, I think the trick is for more of us to do it. Yeah. You know? There is a a comfort in groups, and if it's only left to a couple of people, it's very easy then for the small group of zealots who are trying to cancel people to win. If more of us stand up, this is is my point about the Harper's Letter, it's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. Good point. Uh, Andrew uh, wants to ask about junior academics. He suggests that junior academics with heterodox political views find it difficult to speak out against the, quote, woke consensus for fears of compromising their careers. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, it is, it is, it is very, very hard because, you know, when, when we were talking about Peter Reed earlier, Peter is at the latter end of his career, having been at JCU for 27 years. Um, and I spoke to a couple of other academics at the time that Peter was uh, terminated, um, who likewise... Um, were at the you know end of their careers. It's easier for them to stand up. It's easier for them to um, to take on that kind of orthodoxy, the woke culture. It is harder for younger academics. It's exa- especially harder for younger academics when they're on short-term contracts. Um, you know they are they are realities that that people face. And um, I would only hope that those of us who can stand up um, and take on this culture and try to turn the tide do so so that it's not left up to people who economically basically have no power to do that. Right, and you, you mentioned uh, casual academics or those in short-term contracts. I think the, the really worrying thing there is they'll never know they were cancelled uh, because they don't have to be cancelled, they just have to not be renewed. Is, is this is the cancel culture especially a threat in the gig economy world? It is, of course, it is, because as you say, you just you just never know. Um, but I think when you're on the inside of an organisation, it's very easy just to, to you know to work out whether people want you around or not. I mean, I don't know if you've read Andrew Sullivan's "See You Next Friday" letter when he left the New York Magazine, um, but uh, he wasn't cancelled. But he 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 left because he what he worked out they just didn't want him there anymore. There were, you know, there were there were too many staff at the New York Magazine who no longer wanted him because he didn't holus bolus agree with critical theory on race and gender and sexual identity and gender identity and whatever you know other part of critical theory um, has become so cemented as an orthodoxy that if you challenge it, um, you're you're out of there. Right now, Gray wants to ask about the institutionalization of human resources departments. Uh, he thinks that much of the cancel culture is associated with human resources, with HR. And he wants to know, is there, a, or she wants to know if there's a legal means to disempower human resources as their reach often punishes employees expressing their views in private, even on social media. <laughs> 
You're so right. Who, who was it? There was a, there was a well, famous... Well, that's, that's Gray... Oh, I'm sorry. Who, who was asking Gray 341? But who said it? I don't know. <laughs> no, sorry. because there was a famous person who said that we need to dismantle human rights... Uh, sorry, um, human resources departments brick by brick and then corporations would be much better off without them. <laughs> and it absolutely is a problem. My experience from talking to people in uh, human resources departments is that they in, in, in themselves are fearful if they don't... Um, if they don't censor something, that they will be held to account. So there's this terrible swirling intolerance within corporations, especially, I think, today. Um, and, you know, that's my point about this social justice movement. It is everywhere. We can't just ignore it. Um, and it's harder and harder to, to, to confront unless more of us step up. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how you take on human resources departments because they have become power unto themselves. But I do know, um, you know, this organisation Sleeping Giants, it's, it's, it operates on Twitter and it basically tries to get corporations to stop advertising on, say, Sky TV. You know, don't advertise on Paul Murray because Paul Murray said X, Y and Z. It's usually about a handful of people on Twitter and then some poor nervous person in, human, in a human uh, resources department decides to cut advertising. But if you go to the CEO or upper levels, they will reintroduce it. So there's this tension between nervous employees trying to do the right thing and CEOs who do understand the power of advertising. So if, again, if we can expose what these movements, the, the small group of zealots on Twitter, they are just a handful of people. They don't deserve the influence that they are being given. We just have to keep exposing them. Right. Now, I think you brought up an important issue. I think you and I both believe in a commercial media, but when you have commercially supported media, of course, it's up to the advertisers to decide what kind of media they want to support. And, you know, they may legitimately not want to support an organization that publishes me, <laughs> right? And isn't that their that's own decision? That's freedom. So long as they, so long as that, as they are not being forced into doing that salvatory by a handful of people who are pretending that there is this great groundswell of opposition to what you say. If they understand what you're saying and they don't want to air that, that is their prerogative. But may I say that that is not something that the ABC can do, but of course it does do. The ABC has a charter to the, you know, that says it must reflect the full diversity of this country, and it doesn't do that. It's, it, it's more woke than any, you know, commercial network or, or, or corporation in this country. And that's because it's run by um, a very small group of people who call the editorial shots um, in absolute blatant disregard of its charter. Well, that actually brings up something that's, that's very closely connected to cancel culture, which is not getting canceled, but never getting on air in the first place, the pre-cancel culture, if you will. I mean, are these two issues related? Is is it's one thing to lose your gig because of cancel culture, but maybe the bigger problem is not getting the gig in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> look, I think it was fifteen years ago. I I, I, I um, found this wonderful German word called Toschwick tactic, which means death by silence. And I started writing about it when I noticed that uh, organisations like the ABC simply did not include views in debates. Um, and, and that's a very effective, it was one of the early kind of parts of what we now see as cancel culture. There have been so many different, you know, arms to cancel culture, whether it's uh, revising Enid Blyton or, 
you know, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn or not bringing people onto shows. But when you have a charter that actually is a the quid pro quo for getting a billion dollars from taxpayers a year is that you reflect the full diversity of this wonderful country and you don't do that, um, you know, I, I think that's a breach of their, of their legal obligation. So, but it was absolutely a tactic and it still remains one, yes. Now, Mike wants to know what you think of CEOs' embrace of woke culture. Uh, it is, of course, the boards that put the CEOs in in the first place. Uh, why are CEOs embracing this kind of identity? Uh, because it's much nicer to talk about woke issues than it is to talk about tax reform or industrial relations reform. And you can sit around at dinner parties and feel, you know, puff your chest up and feel very good that you talked about all these woke issues, whether it's, you know, inclusivity or diversity. But, of course, it's never inclusivity or diversity around a diversity of views. Um, you know, that's a great irony of the diversity culture. But it's an easier, it's actually just, I think, Salvatore very much, um, you know, seeking sort of social kudos. And it's much easier intellectually to talk about these kind of fluffy issues than it is to go out there on behalf of shareholders and talk about the importance of corporate tax reform or talk about the importance of industrial relations reform so that companies can actually become more profitable and employ more people and return profits to shareholders. How boring. That's so old school to do that these days. I, I am curious. Are they mainly doing it for their firms or are they doing it for themselves? I think a lot of it is for themselves. I do believe that a lot of them. Remember, a lot of these CEOs these days are less invested in the companies that they work for. They, um, they, they, they're not there for as long. So they, I think they use those platforms very much for their own self-aggrandizement. Um, you know, to so that they get invited to the right conferences and they can go to Davos and do yoga while talking about gender quotas and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yes, I think that's absolutely part of, a big part of it. All right. Now, we're moving to final questions here. We'll be wrapping up soon. Isabel wants to know how, and I think she's asking in practical terms, how do we create a counter-cancel culture? You've said how important it is to do it. In practical terms, what do we do? What do we do? We keep having conversations like this and we hope that more people are listening uh, and, 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 and we talk to our, our, our kids about it. We don't mock them for being millennials or for being snowflakes. Um, we don't mock university students for wanting safe spaces and trigger warnings, but we do explain to them the dangers of that kind of um, emerging culture that we're seeing. And we try to, you know, return them to what is a healthy idea of liberalism. I mean, in the end, we have to remember that liberalism, it's not a law of physics, it's a human project, as I wrote on the weekend. And unless we as human beings defend it, champion it, um, and that's in our conversations with all sorts of people. You know, I don't, I don't want to feel helpless. That's why I'm a part of the IPA. You don't want to feel helpless in this human project called liberalism. That's why you're part of the CIS. It's why members join the CIS and the IPA. Right, because if you feel individually you can't do something, you can at least give and support an organisation that is trying to fill the vacuum. We can't, as I said, we can't rely on universities. We know that even you know a liberal-led government does very little on the cultural side of, um, of of liberalism, even on the economic side at the moment. But we won't talk about coronavirus and economic crises. Um, so it falls on us. 
So Charles has an interesting comment. He says, the irony of virtue signaling is the profound selfishness it reveals. Uh, I'd like to go to a final question. We are just about to wrap up here. Final question from Becky. Becky says that corporations that impose corporate responsibilities on their employees remove freedom of choice from the individual. Practically speaking, most of us rely on our jobs for our income, and it's a big deal to lose that. She asks, separation, well, she asks you, is separation of corporation and state now as important as the separation of church and state? Well, look, I, you know, we, but we do have separation of church and state and corporation and state. What's happening is not being dictated by any kind of law um, within corporations. And by the same token, every corporation has a right to have its own code of conduct. We all expect our employees to behave in a certain way. That's not unreasonable. The question is how vague can you make, how ambiguous and how exploitative can you make your code of conduct so that you can remove a rugby player from a rugby field for saying something that had nothing to do with rugby, for example, but that was all under the code of conduct. Um, and the same at a university. I mean, it comes into such stark relief, Salvatore, at a university when you've got a code right. of conduct that goes against the very mission of what a university should do. Right. You know, that should be the easiest case for us to say that's not on. And, and, you know, it's, it's going to be a problem going forward, how, how we deal with codes of conduct in workplaces. And I think we have to keep pushing this idea that it is simply, it gives an employer a licence to terminate someone under terms that are just not clear to an employee if, you, if you're relying on a vague code of conduct. I'm sounding like a terribly boring lawyer. But this <laughs> A bigger and bigger issue, as the Peter Ridd case has exposed. But should, should corporations also have freedom of speech codes? Um, yes and no. I, I think they should just have very clear codes of conduct that, that, that allow people to speak freely without damaging a, a corporation's um, reputation. That's, that's not unreasonable. All right. Final thoughts, Janet? Well, I'm, I'm very grateful that we're talking about it, Salvatore. I do think it's, it's very important that we do it. It's important that people are listening and thinking for themselves about this. Um, and we have to try to end the polarisation of just, you know, being on either side of this debate and, 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 and getting people together, you know, creating a model of what discourse, what healthy discourse looks like. That's what we're trying to do. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, and thank you, Janet, for appearing on the first episode of Season 2 of On Liberty. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks also to our producer, Emily Holmes, who keeps us on the air, our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver, and Tom Switzer is the director of the Center for Independent Studies. Thank you all for watching. We'll see you back next week.